You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1892nd edition of St Edmundsby News Talk for the 20th of August 2022. The editor of this edition is Claire Meller, the producer is Colin Holmes and your readers are Christian Jenner and Neil Keeley. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We'll repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And we start, as always, with two headlines. Basis Memorial Service for Corrie. Suffolk councillor can stay in role despite bribery sentence. The RAF paid tribute to Gunnar Corrie McKeague as family and friends attended a memorial service held for him at his former base. Mr McKeague, an airman of Dunfermline, Fife, was 23 when he vanished in the early hours of September the 23rd, September the 24th, 2016, on a night out in Bury St Edmunds, Suffolk. Earlier this year, an inquest recorded in a narrative conclusion that Mr McKeague got into a bin that was then emptied into a waste lorry. His mother, Nicola Urquhart, greeted mourners outside the church at RAF Honington, where he was stationed, as the City of Norwich Pipe Band played ahead of the, played ahead of the service. Mr McKeague's brother, Darach McKeague, and his sister-in-law, Chloe McKeague, were among those to appear at the ceremony at around 11 o'clock in the morning. Attendees were pictured wearing yellow, blue and green, after the family encouraged mourners to wear bright colours to the service. Station Commander Group Captain Dutch Holland said in a statement, I am privileged to have the memorial service for SAC Corrie McKeague here today at RAF Honington, where he spent his RAF regiment career. This memorial service is an act of worship, led by an RAF padre, and we ask that the family's privacy is respected before, before, during and after this service as they remember the loss of a son, father and brother. Our thoughts continue to be with SAC McKeague's family, friends and colleagues and all those whose lives he touched. Mr McKeague died at about 4.20am in Bury St Edmunds as a result of compression asphyxia in association with multiple injuries jurors at the inquest recorded. Writing on the Find Corrie Facebook page in July, Mrs Urquhart said that she had struggled to come to terms with the findings. But as a family we are ready to have a memorial for Corrie. The Royal Air Force are holding a military memorial Military memorial for Corrie for us, she said. I will never be able to thank the RAF for all they have done and tried to do for us, for all they did for Corrie. The family requested no flowers and instead took a collection for the RAF Benevolent Fund. A West Suffolk District Councillor will be able to continue in her elected role despite being convicted of bribing two nursery workers to lie to Ofsted. Elaine McManus said the workers at Stepping Stones Nursery in Haverhill, where she was a manager and director, £100 each after they signed a false statement about how many staff were on duty when three children escaped from the grounds and got onto a road. On Friday, magistrates in Ipswich handed the 66-year-old Haverhill resident a community order of 60 hours unpaid work and fines of £200 after she pleaded guilty to two charges of giving financial advantage to induce improper performance of a relevant function or activity at an earlier hearing. However, a spokesperson for West Suffolk Council said the legal threshold for disqualification from the council was three months or more imprisonment, including a suspended sentence. 
but as she received a lesser conviction, she would remain a councillor unless she chose to resign. She said, the sentence given does not amount to that and means that unless she resigns, Councillor McManus will remain a councillor until the election in May, when she will need to decide whether she wishes to seek re-election or not. In July, magistrates heard Catherine M's prosecuting state that on March thirtieth, twenty twenty one, under the supervision of an eighteen year old nursery worker, three children were able to leave the playground unattended and were found in the road by a member of the public. McManus, who is also a Haverhill Town Councillor, should have reported the incident to Ofsted, but it was instead reported by the member of the public who had found the children. Ms. Imms told the court that there should have been another member of staff on duty, and when confronted, McManus told Ofsted inspectors that there had been. Both staff members were then paid £100 each straight into their bank accounts as a reward, the court heard. On April the 16th, McManus phoned the Access Lead Officer for Suffolk County Council and explained what had happened. She admitted that she hadn't told the truth and had panicked and paid £100 each to the two staff members. McManus stepped down from her role and the nursery was closed down by Ofsted, the court heard. Amber rating as water levels in Gipping now notably low. Water levels in a Suffolk River are notably low, according to an Environment Agency report, reflecting the drought conditions being experienced across the country. The agency's latest weekly rainfall and river flow summary for the period August the 3rd to 9th gives the River Gipping and Amber rating, with rainfall levels for the week in the east of England totalling less than 0% of the long-term average for August. Rivers in the neighbouring counties of Norfolk and Cambridgeshire were classed as exceptionally low as the prolonged dry spell hit water levels. On Friday, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs declared that Suffolk was among a number of parts of the country to be moved into drought status. This followed a summer of extreme heat with record high temperatures being experienced in the county. However, a hosepipe ban is yet to be imposed, with water company Anglian Water providing reassurances that essential water supplies were safe and reservoir levels had been kept topped up. A spokesperson for Anglian Water highlighted engineering schemes that enabled water to be moved from the wetter north of the company's region to the drier south but still urged customers not to be reckless, as the more water that could be kept in the environment, the better. The River Gipping Trust is dedicated to conserving the river and restoring the structures that enabled navigation of the river from the centre of Stowmarket to the docks in Ipswich. The Trust's chair, Dr John Warren, said, We are all aware that the drought is severe and it is affecting rivers and gardens and farms. This has a big impact on wildlife and therefore it is important for all of us to be careful with our water usage. Last month, campaigners said the River Gipping was in a ludicrous state and claimed extraction of water for the Alton water site combined with dry weather had prevented a natural flow, leading to a build-up of thick weeds. Save the Gipping activists, David Lodge and Bob Chamberlain, said the river between Ipswich and Stowmarket had now turned green and brown. Anglian Water has since announced an end to any abstraction of the river gipping to try to protect the environment in the area. And my next piece is another tale of two rivers. A dog owner whose beloved pet was left covered in blood by broken glass in a river has praised a clean-up effort by volunteers. Pike's Meadow Park in Combs Ford near Stowmarket is a popular walking route for dog walkers as the trail is surrounded by nature next to the Rattleston River. However, residents are growing fed up with the returning litter and broken glass that has spoiled the walk for many. 
Dog walker Courtney Clark's pet Honey was injured in Pike's Meadow and had to have surgery, which cost hundreds of pounds. She said, We were on our regular evening walk, and Honey is a complete water baby who loves jumping in the river, especially when it's hot. Walking back home, we realised that there was lots of blood on the trail. We looked down to see Honey's paw was absolutely covered in blood. The vet told us that it was most likely cut on glass and not a stone, as the wound was so deep and severe. After hearing this, Heather Foster, who also uses the route every day on her daily walk, dog walk, arranged a litter pick and re river clean that took place on Sunday. As a registered litter picker, she receives litter picking bags from Mid-Suffolk District Council, which also collects them once they're full. Heather said, We've had many instances where the broken glass is all over the place and it is completely deliberate with intent to harm. In the past, we've seen shards spread all over the picnic table and both seats. It's really not very nice. The clean-up was a group effort as some targeted the litter surrounding the footpath whilst others made their way into the water to pick up the smashed glass on the riverbed. The community team managed to fill around 20 bags and they also removed a dead deer from the river. Heather said, We are so pleased with the result and how the area is looking now and I am really pleased to see the community spirit. Courtney confirmed that Labrador Honey's injury caused the dog distress and pain and also cost £700. My dog is OK and that's all I really care about, Courtney said. I do think it's fantastic that so many people were involved to clean the area and make it more safe for everyone. We're really grateful for all their hard work, but I just think it's a shame it happened in the first place. Town Food Bank sees increase in demand as locations, donations decline. Amanda Bloomfield, Gatehouse's chief executive, said, The winter is what we are concerned about and I think a lot of food banks are considering how they will get through the winter months. Speaking about the drop in donations, she said, I think it is cost of living. The community are obviously having to prioritise what donations they can give and maybe prioritise their well-being. She added, at the moment we are surviving, but it's a week-on-week -week survival. She said something she was really finding concerning was people were becoming swamped with increasing levels of debts, thousands of pounds worth because of the rise in fuel bills, particularly because a lot of people were on pay-as-you-go meters and therefore don't build up credit. Traditionally, Gatehouse helps people at the point of crisis, but Ms Bloomfield said they also wanted to look at offering support before or past asking for help, for example with budgeting. Gatehouse has secured a £20,000 grant from Suffolk Community Foundation to help people impacted by rising costs and she said there was a lot of demand for it already. Speaking of high demand for the food bank, Ms Bloomfield said it tended to be those aged 30 to 60 going to them and often those in work but on low wages or reduced hours. For the first six months of 2022, Gatehouse had given out 644 food bank parcels. Gatehouse needs items including long-life milk, canned soup, pasta, noodles, rice, tea bags and soap. If you wish to contact them, call 01284 754 967. High Point Prison is to be expanded by more than half its current number of inmates without the requirement for a lower speed limit nearby, despite a police suggestion that this would improve safety. West Suffolk Council approved plans for three new housing blocks at High Point South, Stradishall, alongside development needed to accommodate increased numbers, including a two-storey building for vocational education and workshops, extra industrial workshop space, a kitchen building, 
a healthcare building, a pharmacy, a car park and an extension to the existing gym. The population would rise by more than 700 in a prison that, according to the most recent Home Office figures, houses 1,248 offenders. During Wednesday's Development Control Committee meeting, some councillors expressed surprise over the Highway Authority's acceptance of the 40-mile-per-hour speed limit on the A143 near High Point. The vote was passed with eight councillors in favour, four against and three abstentions. The Highway Authority, Suffolk County Council, had objected to the plans in April of this year, citing Suffolk Constabulary's advice that reducing the speed limit to 30 miles an hour and adding speed cameras may be merited to improve safety, and the fact that nine reportable accidents occurred near the site between 2017 and 2021. Councillor Nick Clark, Conservative councillor for Clare, Hundon and Keddington, said... The A143 is a fast, dangerous road. Locals know that cars in ditches are a regular feature. Somehow between April and July, the applicants have convinced authorities that the objections can be lifted despite speed cameras and a 30 mile per hour speed limit being required in April. Claiming an extra 700 700 prisoners, along with visitors, staff, contractors and police, will not add to the road safety issues already identified. It is nonsense. Councillor Stephen said, in the design and access statement that the Ministry of Justice put out, access for visitors would be from railway stations at Newmarket and Dullingham. Three arrests after armed police attend busy car park. Three men have been arrested on suspicion of theft after armed police were called to a car park in Newmarket. The men were all in a white van parked in Rouse Road Car Park at 11.50am on Friday, August 5th, when police, who were seeking the vehicle in relation to a metal theft the previous day, located it. Police believed there may have been a firearm in the vehicle, and armed police arrived on the scene minutes later. In a statement, Suffolk Police said police, including armed officers, were in attendance of an ongoing inquiry in Newmarket. The incident relates to a reported incident of metal theft from a property in Crowfield. The suspected vehicle was located travelling towards Cambridgeshire and officers were immediately dispatched to the area. At approximately 11.50am, the vehicle was located in a car park off the high street near Rouse Road. A large amount of cabling was found within the vehicle, but no weapons were recovered. The three men were subsequently arrested on suspicion of theft. Four men were arrested after £20,000, suspected cannabis and two weapons were seized. Police stopped a vehicle in Acacia Avenue, Bury St Edmunds, last Thursday. Three men were arrested at the scene and a fourth was arrested at a nearby property. A search of the vehicle found a small quantity of suspected cannabis, as well as cash and items of drug paraphernalia. Cash thought to be in the region of £20,000 and more than 90 grams of suspected cannabis were found in a bedroom. Two weapons, a lock knife and a sword, were also discovered in the property. Three men aged 19, 22 and 20 were arrested on suspicion of being concerned in supplying drugs. A 21-year-old was arrested on suspicion of being concerned in supplying drugs, money laundering and possession with intent to supply drugs. They have since been released under investigation. Poundland has announced that it will be closing the Newmarket branch of its business. The store, which is in the Guineas shopping centre, will close its doors on August the 20th. Signs have been placed in the windows of the store, which say the shop is closing due to unforeseen circumstances. The decision comes just weeks after a similar decision was taken by Poundland, only for the closure plans to be reversed at the last minute.
A member of staff at the store said, We wouldn't be able to comment on the exact reasons at this point, as we have only recently had a meeting about the closure, and at store level we cannot give that information out. The branch was one of several that were temporarily closed early last year during the COVID-19 pandemic. The head office of Poundland was approached for comment. Residents at two Berries and Edmonds care homes are celebrating after the facility's gardens scooped top prizes in the Berry and Bloom competition. This week, Glastonbury Court Care Home was named overall champion, with Davis Court netting the bronze award. A viewing at Glastonbury Court is planned for August the 18th between 2 and 4pm. Newmarket's All Saints Parish Church will welcome a new vicar next month when the Reverend Robert O'Toole will be installed. The ceremony will be carried out by the Bishop of St Edmundsbury and Ipswich, the Right Reverend Martin Seeley, and the Archdeacon of Sudbury, the Venerable Dr David Jenkins. The service will be on September the 5th at 7.30pm. An army team carried out a controlled explosion in Bury St Edmunds on Tuesday. Police were first called to Dobby's Garden Centre in Ruffham Road at 8am on Tuesday by a member of the public after reports of a suspected unexploded device. The army team arrived from Colchester at 10.15. Dobby's Garden Centre was evacuated as the army investigated the device. At about 12.15, the army team carried out a controlled explosion of the device after it had been moved to a safe location. In an update at about 3.30, it is believed the device was a dummy tank shell used for wartime training. It was removed to a nearby field where the explosion was carried out. The device had been unearthed from a stream bed during a land survey for a new housing development. And here are some letters. How I agree with the letter Berry Free Press, August the 5th, regarding cyclists on pavements, which is an offence against the law. I have to depend on my disability scooter to get around and have had near-miss accidents with cyclists, such as a lady coming up to a blind corner at speed, both of us stopping in the nick of time. These cyclists are so dangerous to children and adults who are just walking where they should be safe. I shout off the pavement. Many are young men or boys, who sometimes give me a mouthful or just ride away even faster. Also, there is a problem with cyclists in the Abbey Gardens, riding fast, with little children running about. Do we have anyone to police these problems? And that's from Monica Ames in Bury St Edmunds. I was fortunate to appear on the Sky News leadership debate and I asked about the problems getting any NHS dentistry. The answer from Rishi Sunak was poor, to say the least. It's 2018 since we in Bury St Edmunds lost our My Dentist surgery, yet nothing seems to be done. I have a friend who tried to pull a tooth with a Swiss army knife and a lady living on the Howard estate lost teeth. I was having a blood test last week, checking on my triple bypass and nurses said that many adults and children were turning up at A&E to get dental treatment. Yes, Berry has fabulous private dentists, but at a cost that the elderly and those on low incomes just cannot afford. I'm waiting to get an emergency appointment that's going to cost over £75. That's a lot of my pension, with everything else going up and up. Tom Murray in Bury St Edmunds. I just hope when the excellent Liz Truss is announced as our Prime Minister in early September, she is bold enough to make a decision in the national interest to commence fracking as soon as possible. The UK has huge deposits of shale, and it is clear the energy crisis is only going to get worse. The environmentalists must be ignored and the government must support and get on with the extraction of this low-cost source of energy. We are currently importing 47% of our gas requirements from various insecure sources and fracking has the potential to make us energy independent, but we need to respond now without going through endless consultations. 
That's from Tony Nicholl in Bury St Edmunds. My next letter comes from Paul Brennan, who's the director of Benefit Answers, based in Preston. Pension credit is a benefit paid to those on low incomes who are above state pension age. It is designed to help with living costs by guaranteeing them a minimum income. That equates to a top-up on weekly incomes to £182.60 for those who are single or a joint weekly income of £278.70 for couples. Significantly, it can also lead to the automatic payment of additional support, including the cost of living payment, housing benefit, a council tax discount, help with NHS dental treatment, glasses and transport costs, and a free TV licence for those aged 75 and over. It goes to 1.4 million pensioners, but an estimated 850,000 pensioner households are failing to claim a total of £1.7 billion, according to the Department of Work and Pensions. To be eligible for the first cost of living payment, a person must be entitled to a payment of pension credit on any day from 26th of April to 25th of May 2022. However, new claims for pension credit can be backdated for a maximum of three months, provided the entitlement conditions are met throughout the three months. To guarantee that 25th of May will be included in the first pension credit payment for pensioners wishing to backdate a new claim, the claim should be made as soon as possible and no later than 18th of August. Benefit Answers will check for you. It's free and totally confidential. Just contact Benefit Answers on 0333-121-2128. Columnist Kevin Hurst gets worked up over allegedly misogynistic memes he says he received following the England women's football team's splendid victory in the recent final. Mr Hurst's fashionable sense of gender equality political outrage hilariously counters his putative support for levelling up by implying that women need the protective cloak of the patriarchy to shield them against the creators of some rather amusing and, in a sane world, utterly harmless memes. I think that's an own goal. And that's from Nigel Wright in Bury St Edmunds. And this is from social media, finally a story saying that the share of homegrown doctors and nurses joining England's NHS is at its lowest for seven years. BBC Shared Data Unit, analysis of workforce data, found some 58% of doctors joining the health service in 2021 came from the UK, while health bosses increasingly, with, with health bosses increasingly turning to international recruitment. Kyle Gammon said, I can't join until I have a three-year continuous employment reference. So yes, easier to recruit from abroad. And Zoe Marie said, worked at West Suffolk Hospital for 10 years, always looking at ways to train up and become a nurse, but there were never stepping stones, so I left. I know of hundreds of staff who would like to train but just can't get the opportunity. This is a feature about the village of Lydgate. It's headlined, Tracking Down the History of Our Own Castle on the Hill, which refers to the Framlingham Castle that found fame in the song by Ed Sheeran. The view from the hilltop is idyllic, stretching for miles over golden cornfields, woods and a distant windmill. But centuries ago, the people scanning the horizon from this vantage point would have been looking out for something more sinister, approaching hostile forces. A castle stood on this spot at a turbulent time in England's past, when a commanding outlook over the surrounding countryside could mean the difference between life and death. Now all that remains is a flint wall in the churchyard of a West Suffolk village rich in history that tantalisingly has never been properly explored but a team of enthusiasts in Lydgate is working to boost residents' interest in the past and what, intriguingly, might lie beneath their feet. 
they have formed an archaeology group in the village which was home to humans long before Norman invaders built the first castle more than 900 years ago. An ancient sunken road leads down from the hill across the fields and evidence has been found in the past of occupation by tribes from Neolithic times through the Bronze and Iron Ages. The Romans were here too. A large Roman villa was discovered in the 1970s southeast of the village, which lies halfway between Newmarket and Clare. So far, Lydgate Archaeology Group has concentrated on the area around the Castle Hill and a long, dry mere identified by a scan which may have been created by damming a stream. An early achievement in 2018 was organising research that persuaded Historic England to extend the scheduled monument status of the castle to include the area where a medieval town began to grow up around it. Covid interrupted the group's work, but it is now back in action. This year it has put up information boards and obtained permission for a footpath around the castle site which is now open to walkers. The highest point on which the castle stood is shrouded in trees and rises behind St Mary's Church, partly surrounded by a deep, dry moat. The archaeology group first got together five years ago. Chairman John Whitefield moved to Lydgate 25 years ago, but also lived there in the 1980s when his father, the Reverend Geoffrey Whitefield, was vicar of St Mary's. Because the village does have quite a bit of historical interest, including the castle, the mere and a Roman villa, we thought it was something with which we could add value to the village, he said. So far they have put up three illustrated information boards telling the story of the castle and the mere, which might have been similar to the one that still exists near Framlingham Castle. John said core sampling of the field, where the mere used to be, was done by an archaeologist three years ago and showed the area was once underwater. The group has also got approval from the Wills Trust, which owns the land, to set up a permissive footpath that takes in the view from the back of the castle hill and continues down towards the site of the mere. We got funding from Suffolk County Council and West Suffolk Council towards the cost, said John, who also chairs Lydgate Parish Council. We have a thousand leaflets which talk you through the walk. We are going to have those for residents and visitors, stored in a holder outside the Star Pub in the village. The path will officially be opened on September the 24th. Someone who probably knows more than anyone about Lydgate's past is village historian Anthony Foreman. Anthony's ancestors have lived in the area since at least the 18th century. His grandparents moved to Lydgate and his father was the local wheelwright. He has written books about the village including Lydgate Castle and its Lords, which was published in 2020. The book tells how, after the Norman conquest, Lydgate was among the manors dished out to the new king's henchmen, William de Watterville and Reynold, or Reginald the Breton. The unfortunate Reynold may well have been due some kind of reward for his services. He'd lost his nose in battle. But most men were harsh and cruel, and the villagers were badly treated. The first Lydgate castle, with a wooden tower and defensive fences, would have been a safe place to keep an eye on rebellious locals. Later Reynold, and Antony wonders if he was by then repenting his cruelty, set off on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land and entrusted the manor to the Abbey of Bury St Edmunds. No more was heard of him or William. Lydgate was then given as a perk to the stewards of the Abbey, who looked after law and order in the Liberty of St Edmund, which covered the whole of West Suffolk. Sometime later the castle was rebuilt in stone probably during the long tenure of Maurice de Windsor, who was steward from 1119 until 1155. Antony, a retired Roman Catholic priest who has served in parishes including Newmarket, Sudbury and Stowmarket, says the remaining wall in the churchyard was probably part of the gatehouse. The 12th and 13th centuries saw the two most tempestuous times in the castle's history, with England embroiled in civil wars. First was the anarchy, almost 20 years of bloodshed following the death of Henry I in 1135, when Stephen of Blois contested the throne with his cousin Matilda, Henry's daughter and the only legitimate heir. 
It is not certain where the loyalty of the Abbey and Lydgate's Lord of the Manor lay, but possibly, at least at first, with Matilda. In the end, a kind of peace was restored, and Matilda's son, Henry II, was declared king. After Morris de Windsor, the stewardship and manor passed to his relatives, the Hastings family, who dominated the remaining period of the castle's family. One William Hastings struggled with money problems and then became caught up in the revolt of the barons against the tyrannical King John, which led to the signing of the Magna Carta in 1215. Civil war broke out again in 1264, when barons, led by Simon de Montfort, rose up against Henry III. The Hastings family had meanwhile grown in power and influence, and now also had properties in other parts of the country. Henry Hastings III, who had an unsettled upbringing after being orphaned, threw in his lot with Simon de Montfort, aged 23. At first, the barons gained the upper hand, and Henry was knighted on the battlefield by Simon during a confrontation with Crown Prince Edward's army. But squabbles broke out among the rebels, and everything began to go wrong. Simon was killed in the Battle of Evesham. Sir Henry was wounded but managed to escape. With the barons eventually defeated, the rebels' lands were confiscated and distributed to those loyal to the crown. Lydgate was given to Gilbert de Clare. But the manor was later returned to the Hastings family and inherited by Sir Henry's son John, who became the most powerful lord to be associated with the village. He even, at one point, through ancestral connections, made an unsuccessful claim for the Scottish throne. Lydgate, meanwhile, was enjoying its boom years. Prolonged good weather had led to population growth and prosperity. John brought Lydgate to its highest point of prosperity. He was going to develop the village into a town. There was a huge amount of wealth coming in, says Anthony. The village grew to five or six hundred people. It never reached that number again until Victorian times. The population now is about 240. The field at the back of the castle is called Tinker's Close, and in the Middle Ages there was possibly a market there. But disaster was just around the corner. The whole thing collapsed because of a famine, due to terrible weather conditions. Everything went downhill, and Lydgate became a backwater, and extremely poor. The castle was also reaching the end of its useful life. After the Black Death in the 1300s, it was probably falling down, and some of the flints may have been used in the church, said Antony. The aim is simply to further our understanding of the history of the village and the Roman villa, which was under the plough for a long time. We think there was an Iron Age fort on the same site as the castle. It's in such a good position, it looks over the ancient Icknield Way, which runs south of Newmarket. We would really like someone to do some proper excavations. There is talk of clearing the castle site of trees, he added. And just a reminder that Anthony Foreman's book is called Lydgate Castle and its Lords. Now I have a fairly lengthy um, article as well under the opinion heading. It's written by Dr Dan Poulter, MP for Central Suffolk and North Ipswich, and he calls it Patients Deserve Better from Mental Health Trust, so for me, it's time is up. Last week it emerged that over 100 doctors at the Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust, that's the NSFD, did not have confidence in the executive leadership of the organisation. This follows six years of poor Care Quality Commission reports which indicated serious failings in patient care in our local mental health services. Patients deserve better and the current situation is unsustainable. On a recent visit to the Woodlands Inpatient Mental Health Unit at Ipswich, I detected a tension between the trust management and those working on the front line of patient care. But for so many doctors to publicly indicate a lack of confidence in how the trust is being managed is almost unprecedented. Running a mental health trust is not easy and there are constant battles with commissioners, the people who fund patient services, about where and how money should be spent. 
it can be difficult to gain parity of esteem for mental health services when there are competing physical health priorities such as cancer care and reducing pressure on A&E departments. Healthcare commissioners often lack the knowledge, understanding and skills to support the delivery of good mental health services. However, in the case of NSFT, it would be wrong to put the blame for the current situation at the door of poor commissioning. This is not about a lack of funding, nor is it about poor commissioning. The plain truth is that the trust is poorly managed. Regulation 28 reports are issued by coroners when a patient has died with a view to preventing future patient deaths. These reports are important and a coroner has a duty to issue them when there are concerns about serious failings in patient care. Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust has received an avalanche of these reports in recent years. This should have set alarms bells, alarm bells ringing in the Trust's senior leadership, but little has changed. There is a sense of denial about the scale of the problem, and a desperate hope that the next care quality inspection will be better. Unfortunately, patients and their families continue to pay the price. Over several years, I have met many frontline staff who work in mental health services across Suffolk and Norfolk. I have little doubt that they are dedicated and care about their patients. They want to deliver the highest quality of care. However, frontline staff have been let down in their efforts to care for their patients by ineffectual trust leadership and poor organisational structures, particularly in community mental health and child services. At an organisational level, Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust has forgotten what good patient care looks like. Too often, senior leaders at the Trust are promoted from within and good people from outside the organisation who can bring important new ideas and a sense of focus in delivering better care are seen as too challenging and are kept out. In addition, there are challenges at a non-executive level. Zoe Billingham, the current chair of the Trust, is a good person and wants to do the right thing by patients, but the board lacks important skill sets that would help bring much-needed challenge to the executive team. So, what is the way forward? A few years ago, Colchester Hospital was in a mess and was perhaps one of the worst-performing hospitals in the country. Nick Hume the then chief executive of Ipswich Hospital, went in and turned things round. Part of that process required blunt and honest conversations about the scale of the challenge facing Colchester. In time, the hospitals merged and became one trust under Nick's leadership. And patient care and the delivery of patient services has been much improved. A similar approach now needs to be taken at Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust. Running big NHS organisations is not easy, but recent events have led me to the conclusion that the only viable way forward is for something similar to now happen at Norfolk and Suffolk Foundation Trust and for the Trust to be put into special administration. Trust special administration would result in external management being brought in to take over and improve patient safety and care. Trust special administration, special administration would also mean that there can be much needed honesty about the scale of the problems and it would allow for an immediate focus on improvements in patient care whilst the future structures of local mental health services could be determined. As a doctor, I know how challenging managing and working in mental health services can be. So, whilst I continue to hope the NSFT will turn things around on its own, it is, with some regret, that I have come to the conclusion that the time is up. Patients and the staff who care for them deserve better. Inhaler users have been urged to play their part in the fight against climate change by disposing of the devices safely. Health chiefs in Suffolk are advising people with respiratory conditions who use metered dose inhalers, MDIs, not to throw their devices in household bins and instead take them to their local pharmacy when they have finished with them. 
The propellants in many commonly used MDIs are powerful greenhouse gases which often remain in the canister after use. Dr Pete Holloway, chairman of the Suffolk and North East Essex Integrated Care Board Respiratory Committee said, We've all got to do our bit for the environment to combat the threat of climate change and people who use inhalers can play a huge part. There are nearly 100,000 people in Suffolk and North East Essex using inhalers. If they end up in household waste, the canisters get crushed in rubbish trucks, releasing greenhouse gases. The great irony is that global warming worsens air pollution, which in turn directly and adversely impacts the health of the very people using the inhalers. Taking your used inhalers to your local pharmacy for safe disposal will make a real difference, and I urge people with respiratory conditions to do just that. The Regions Ambulance Trust has been criticised for spending almost £15,000 of money raised by the late Captain Tom Moore on pin badges. The East of England Ambulance Trust was allocated £120,000 by NHS Charities Together, the cause Captain Tom fundraised for, which was ring-fenced to be spent on measures to improve staff well-being. The vast majority of this money was spent on spaces for staff to use at ambulance stations, including benches, well-being gardens and rooms. This included buying 120 benches which were put across 80 of its sites. However, the Trust spent £14,937 of this money on 8,500 pin badges and cards which were sent to members of staff. The move has been questioned by paramedics, with one describing it as a shocking waste of time, I would say of money. He said staff could have benefited from welfare rooms, or where they do exist, upgraded ones. Many stations do not have those facilities at all, and it would allow staff a quiet place to go if they have experienced a particularly stressful job. Often staff have to go into the crew room with lots of other staff who won't understand what they have just endured. Badges are not the answer, and they were a shocking waste of money. The Trust also spent £5,000 of the grants on welfare dogs, a scheme which allows staff to spend time with an animal for therapeutic purposes. However, this project has been delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, and will be piloted shortly. The paramedic added, I doubt very much that when people donated their hard-earned money, they thought some of it would be spent on badges and dogs. An East of England Ambulance Trust spokesman said, During the pandemic, the Trust formed a charity, work, a charity working group from a cross-section of its staff to identify the best use of charitable funds. The ideas from that group were put forward for approval to the Charitable Funds Committee, which is chaired by a non-executive director and made up of representatives from many departments across the Trust. A strong focus on the projects approved were the benefits to the health and well-being of our staff, who have been through a challenging time during the pandemic and the high demand on the service on the surface for over the past year. And just a bit of background for those who may have forgotten, the Captain Tom Foundation was set up during the COVID-19 pandemic after the 100-year-old military veteran, Thomas Moore, began walking laps of his garden in Bedfordshire to raise funds for NHS Charities Together, a federation of health service charities. The campaign raised a staggering £32.8 million, and the Captain Tom Foundation was founded as a mechanism for collecting the cash. However, more than a year after Captain Tom's death, and the foundation has become marred in controversy. In March 2021, the Charity Commission opened a case into the charity after concerns were raised around arrangements between the organisation and a company linked to his family. In June, the Commission launched a statutory inquiry into the Foundation. Two more cases of monkeypox have been identified in Suffolk. 
In the latest Notifications of Infectious Diseases report issued by the UK Health and Security Agency, cases of the disease were identified in the county. A spokesman for Suffolk County Council said, Monkeypox is usually a mild illness, which can be spread by very close contact and most people recover within a few weeks. The infection can be passed on through close physical or intimate contact like kissing, skin to skin, or sharing things like clothing, bedding and towels. However, the virus does not usually spread easily between people and the UK risk to the UK population remains low. Symptoms of monkeypox include fever, headache, muscle aches, backache, swollen lymph nodes, chills and exhaustion. A rash can also develop and change through different stages. A new era of a long-standing social enterprise serving the Sudbury area has achieved liftoff after being given the go-ahead for its major expansion plans. The Bridge Project is pressing ahead with the development of expanded headquarters on land north of AFC Sudbury in Brundon Lane. Following the granting of planning permission by Baybrook District Council, targeted for completion by the end of the year, the new hub will work alongside the football club's facilities to expand the charity's offering for disadvantaged adults as well as its popular meal delivery service. These activities will include educational opportunities to provide life skills and promote, promote independent living. In addition to environmental and outdoor pursuits, such as nurturing fresh produce at dedicated new allotments. Dave Jackson, chief executive of The Bridge Project, said the new headquarters is anticipated to be up and running by the end of October. It has definitely been a journey and trying to get everything lined up, but now there's light at the end of the tunnel, he said. We've got the opportunity to bring together an absolutely second-to-none service for our users. It's great to see all that work come to fruition. It has been a year since we started our partnership with AFC Sudbury. We've been running their catering and hospitality, and it has been getting such great feedback. To put our service users at the forefront of that is fantastic to see because it raises their self-esteem in a positive spiral upwards. We're now building on that with the next level of integration with AFC Sudbury. The new hub, which will be housed within a repurposed former college building, will take the place of the charity's long-time base in Gainsborough Street. To maintain a presence in Sudbury Town Centre, The charity has also launched a new art cafe at the Boreham Gate Precinct on Friday, which will be open five days a week. Known as Create, the space will allow users to create and sell artwork and provide an area for local artists to showcase their works, whilst produce grown at the Brundon Lane allotments will be available to purchase. Suffolk Fire and Rescue saw a huge increase in the number of field fires attended during the month of July. Firefighters attended over 300 incidents involving field fires last month, compared to 73 in the same period in 2021 and 100 in 2020. It follows a very busy period for firefighters amid hot weather and a lack of rainfall in the region. July the 19th saw a major incident declared by Suffolk Fire and Rescue following increased demand, with crews attending more than 60 incidents during the day, and incidents have continued into August. John Lacey, Chief Fire Officer for Suffolk Fire and Rescue Service, said, We have seen a significant increase in incidents recently because of prolonged periods of dry heat, And with Suffolk being a predominantly rural county, fires in the open are far more common. Our fire service works tirelessly to get these incidents under control and help minimise the risk of injuries or damage to nearby properties. And I know that our efforts are greatly appreciated by the local community. Of course, the best way for people to show their gratitude is to remain fire safety aware. It is likely that our service will see more busy days as the UK is set to keep experiencing hotter summers. 
So it's really important that everyone reduces the risk of fires by not littering, disposing of cigarettes irresponsibly or using disposable barbecues in public open spaces. And you won't be surprised to know that there is not a lot of rain forecast. Now, I have three, um, looking back, uh, snippets here. Uh, 10 years ago, 25 years ago, and 50 years ago. So, 10 years ago, in 2012, a retired school teacher passed the baton to one of her former pupils. Lynn Johnson was stepping down from Howard Community Primary in Bury St Edmunds after a 37-year career. Her replacement was Jason Baxter, who attended the school in St Olaf's Road in the 1990s. The 58-year-old, who had been at the school for 21 years and remembers teaching 7-year-old Jason, said, This is the time in my life when I want to change direction. Jason's appointment is a full circle, which is lovely for the community. He was, and still is, such a bouncy and enthusiastic lad. 25 years ago, in 1997, cheers and applause greeted the sight of a 400,000-year-old hearth lifted sky high, but the overwhelming feeling was one of relief. Possibly the oldest hearth ever found in Britain, it had been unearthed in a forest pit northwest of Bury St Edmunds. The exact location was kept a secret to stop destructive sightseers and was lifted out of its home by a crane. But until it was actually lifted clear, the tension was apparent among the group of archaeological students who had spent their summer break on the site and project leader Dr John Gowlett, reader in archaeology at Liverpool University. And 50 years ago, former Bury St Edmunds constituency Labour agent Barry Young abandoned his two-year double-decker bus trip around the world in 1972. Mr and Mrs Young and their two children and friends Mr and Mrs Robin Luff and their two children set off on the trip three months before, but they decided to call it off when they reached south-central Yugoslavia. We have parted on good terms, Mr Young told the Free Press. He said they had run into more difficulties than expected during their first three months out and decided to abandon the trip because of the even more difficult conditions ahead. Sepsis survivor Pam Driscoll has finally returned home to Lawshall after four months in hospital. At the same time, a fundraising raffle for the Mum in a Million has raised more than £7,000 to help the Lawshall 52-year-old recover from life-threatening sepsis. Pam was left fighting for her life after a suspected sinus infection resulted in pneumococcal septicemia, with sepsis ravaging her body. After falling ill with flu-type symptoms on April the 10th, Pam was initially admitted to the West Suffolk Hospital before being transferred to the Broomfield Hospital in Chelmsford. She has since undergone extensive skin grafts while both legs were amputated below the knee and she lost all the fingers on her left hand. Her daughter Rosie of West Row said Mum came home and is doing really well. It is overwhelming for her to be home and trying to find her way around the house in her electric wheelchair, which we got with GoFundMe money. Rosie and Pam's best friend Michelle Roper organised the fundraising raffle with 83 prizes donated by local businesses and it was drawn on Sunday, having sold 1,400 tickets. The response was amazing, as was the number of tickets sold, said Rosie. We're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number on the pink sheet which you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. Telephone numbers mentioned this edition were Benefit Answers, free phone 0333 121 2128 and Gatehouse 01284 
News Talk will be back again next week. So until then, from Claire, Colin, Christian and Neil, it's goodbye. Goodbye. been listening to a podcast brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.